Let us pray, please. Father God, how blessed we are to have the opportunity today to gather together in worship as your church family here at First Baptist Church. We ask that you bless our gathering. May we understand your word and may it find application in our hearts and our minds. These things we pray in your son's name. Amen. Our pastor is in Lebanon. He sent a Facebook post this morning of looking out of his hotel room and uh, beautiful sights. But I want you to pray for him for this next week for he will be preaching to uh, the refugees from the war-torn countries around uh, Lebanon. And then he also will be preaching or teaching pastors in a pastor school there in Lebanon as well. So keep our pastor in your thoughts and in your prayers as we uh, continue to serve the Lord here in Waco, Texas. We have been preaching a series of sermons, we as a staff, called the Coffee Cup Series. And we have been choosing verses that chances are would be printed on coffee cups if you went to the local bookstore. They not only would be on coffee cups, they might be on wall plaques, they might be on needlepoint pieces, and our pastor pointed out a couple of weeks ago they may even be a tattoo that someone has had put on their body. I happened to go to Mardell's, our Christian bookstore here in Waco, and just happened to browse through the section with coffee cups and needlepoints and plaques, and I was amazed at how many there were in a whole section of coffee cups, placards, paintings, and so forth that people would take home and put on their walls. And I thought to myself, these must be bought because people want them to become life-changing mottos for themselves as they progress in their relationship to Jesus Christ. When I was told that I would be preaching today and that I should be thinking about what coffee cup verse I would uh, be using, I could not help but think of the book of Philippians. I think the book of Philippians has more coffee cup verses in the uh, book than any other book in all of the Bible. I could not help but think about Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then I thought of Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who, strength, who strengthens me. And then I thought of our coffee cup verse today that's found in Philippians, the first chapter, verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When you read that verse, immediately you can begin to understand how in the world could Paul say such words as these. And the best way to understand Paul's words for application in our hearts and minds is for us to understand the context from which Paul writes these words. You see, the Apostle Paul was in prison. This is one of his prison epistles that he wrote to the churches that had been started during his missionary journeys. And Paul, in his imprisonment in the city of Rome, 
reached out to, the word reached the churches that he had established. And the church at Philippi had grown concerned for him because they knew that there were chances that he might be sentenced to death because of his imprisonment. The churches were concerned for Paul's well-being, and they wanted to know if Paul was doing okay in his imprisonment. The church at Philippi had become a strong supporter of the Apostle Paul and his work. Paul loved them for their support and their perseverance to the cause of Christ in their life and in their church and in their city. As a matter of fact, when Paul wrote this epistle, the third verse of the first chapter, Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So there's a strong relationship between Paul and the church at Philippi. The year is 61 A.D., and the Apostle Paul, as I said, has found himself in prison. He's waiting for trial before Caesar. The charge was insurrection against the empire, and it was considered a capital offense for anyone to be accused of insurrection against the Roman Empire. Paul was faced with the real possibility of losing his life for his faith in Jesus Christ. This was not a figment of his imagination. This was a real circumstance of his life. Caesar had the ultimate power of life and death. He used it to his advantage to subdue any individual or any group who thought that they could overthrow this world power, the Roman Empire. The church at Philippi had taken up a collection for the Apostle Paul. And they sent it to him to provide for him during his imprisonment that would make his life maybe a little bit better. The church was grateful, you see, for Paul had brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to their city and to their church. And many of them had believed because Paul heard the Macedonian call, come to us over here in Macedonia and bring to us the message of the gospel. They were concerned and wondered if Paul would survive this imprisonment there in the city of Rome. You know, I find it strange, truthfully, in our day and time that Paul had missed this great opportunity. If one of our TV evangelists found himself in this kind of circumstance, he would have sent out the message and used it for a fundraising effort to to, to support their ministry. But the Apostle Paul in this letter does not char- is not characterized by poor pitiful me. It's characterized by joy. And I read Paul's letter to the church at Philippi and I wonder what in the world did Paul have to be joyful about? Well, take out your number two pencils, as the pastor would say, and write down these three things that I believe is the reason that Paul was joyful in his circumstance of being imprisoned in Rome. The first thing that I would suggest is this, that Paul was joyful because he was confident of the outcome of his life. Read with me. Philippians, the first chapter, 
verse 18 through 20. I will rejoice, for I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectations and hope, that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that all boldness Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether my life or my death. When I read these words of Paul while he is in prison, I do have to ask myself the question, what was there about Paul's circumstances that would cause him to be joyful? He was in prison in Rome, waiting to appear before Caesar, Chances are he would be judged as being an insurrectionist and his life would come to an end. And yet he says, no matter what my circumstances are, I will continue to rejoice. Now, wow, I cannot believe the words that I'm hearing from the Apostle Paul. And I cannot help but wonder if in this sanctuary, if we were in those circumstances, would our words be characterized as words of joy? Fearful? Yes. Angry? Yes. Frustrated? Yes. And yet Paul, when he wrote to the church at Philippi explaining his circumstances, the words that he wrote were characterized by the words joyful. Now, why in the world would Paul be joyful with the circumstances that would ultimately cost him his life? And why in the world would he be joyful thinking that Caesar had the power of life and death in his life? Well, I think Paul gives us the answer in verse 19. Paul stakes his life on the belief that his imprisonment and his perplexities and inconveniences would turn out for his deliverance, he says. The word deliverance there in that passage of Scripture is the same word that you and I would translate salvation. In other words, Paul looks at his circumstances and believes that the power of God is working in his life. And no matter what the outcome would be, Paul says, it is for my salvation that I'm experiencing these things. Well, Paul tells us in verse 20 exactly what he meant by such an outrageous statement as this. His heart's desire would be that Christ should be honored in the outcome no matter what those circumstances would be. If you go back and look at these verses, there are two circumstances that Paul states that is the reason for his feeling that salvation will be the outcome of his circumstance. One is the prayers of the people in Philippi. Paul's ministry was undergird by prayer by many who had been in a relationship to him during his time of ministry. We have a lot of wonderful things that are happening here at First Baptist Church. And one of the recent things that has been happening is the developing of a prayer ministry on behalf of our staff, and on behalf of the ministries of our church. Susie Jane, shortly after the turn of the year in January, came to me and said that she had been reading a book that Matt had mentioned in one of his sermons, The Circle Maker. 
And as she had been reading that book, she was impressed that God would have us at First Baptist Church to develop a circle of friends who would pray for our staff and who would pray for the ministries of the church. Well, as she came to that to me, she asked me, what do I think? And I said, well, if God has put it on your heart, then we ought to do something about it. And she said, with your permission, I believe that I will. And she began to publicize and enlist people in the church. And as God continued to place that on her heart, she said, well, God, if you'll give me 50 people in this church who will pray on a daily basis for our staff and the ministers of this church, I will be your servant in getting this thing off the ground. Well, as she began to ask people to join in the effort of praying for our staff and praying for the ministers of our church, she was overwhelmed with the volunteers who said, I will do that, I will do that. And to this day, <coughs> I asked her for an update this morning. She has 164 people on a daily basis praying for every staff member in our church in every ministry in this community that we have. There are a lot of good things that are happening. And Paul says, the reason that I'm convinced that God will work in my circumstances for my salvation is because of the prayers of the people in the church at Philippi and because of the Spirit of Jesus Christ at work in my life. The second thing that I believe that I see in this passage of Scripture is found in verse 20. In verse 20, Paul expresses eager expectations and hope that God who had begun a good work in him would continue until it was finished. If you know much about Paul's life, you know that he had a unique and life-changing experience on the road to Damascus. He had dedicated his life to the ratification of, the, uh, uh, of Christianity that opposed his Jewish faith, he believed. And on the road to Damascus with warrants in his back pocket to go and arrest Christians there in Damascus, bring them back to imprisonment and to be tried by authorities, he went on the road toward Damascus, and lo and behold, he was visited by a bright light, and a word was asked of him, Why do you kick against me, Saul, who later became Paul? And his life was changed forever. Now, I must say to you, as I have studied the life of Paul, and I have looked at the price that he paid for being a follower of Jesus Christ, I think if there ever was anyone who should have complained to God, I gave my life and this is what I got. Listen to his words that are found in 2 Corinthians, verse, beginning with verse uh, 24. Five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning, three times I was shipwrecked, and for a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys I experienced dangers from rivers, dangers from bandits, dangers from my own people, 
dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, and in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. And besides other things, I am under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all of the churches. Who is weak? I'm not weak. Who is made to stumble? I am not indignant. And when I read those words over and over of the price that Paul paid to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I cannot help but think that we ought to be ashamed of ourselves when we come into the sanctuary and suddenly our air condition is not working very well and you decide, I don't believe I'll stay for church today. Paul's experience puts us to shame. And if there was anyone who has called of God through Jesus Christ to be a servant of His, Paul had reason, I believe, to complain at the price that he paid for being a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul was not afraid to live or die. Either way, he wanted Christ to be honored in and through his life. Paul asked nothing for himself. He only asked that he would be found faithful in his witness for Jesus Christ. In 1993, Frank Reich was the backup quarterback for the Buffalo Bills. He was playing the Houston Oilers in uh, playoff there in Buffalo. Second quarter, Jim Kelly, the number one quarterback for Buffalo, was hurt and could not continue. Frank Reich, the backup quarterback, came in. They were behind 33 to 3. Well, you would think that Frank Wright would call a running play every time that he had opportunity to call a play just to run out the clock and accept the defeat that was his. Not Frank Wright. Frank Wright led the largest comeback of any NFL playoff team to defeat the Houston Oilers 38-35. And to this day, he still holds that record. The point that I'm making is this, that you would imagine that the media after the game wanted to come and hear Frank Wright's words as to what he thought was the key to his being able to lead such a comeback there. And Frank Wright, being the Christian that he was, stood before the media that day and quoted the words, Christ alone, Christ alone, gave him the opportunity to serve him and honor him by leading and empowering him in this kind of comeback. That's what Paul would say. Paul would say, in Christ alone do I find my strength, in Christ alone do I have this vision. In Christ alone, and may He be honored in everything that I do and in everything that I say. In 1955, 
five young men gathered in Ecuador with the vision of reaching the tribe of the Aka Indians who lived deep within the rainforest. They decided that God would have them to bring the gospel to this group of Indians who had never heard the gospel before. They began by dropping gifts to the Indians. And in January of 1956, they decided that they had developed a relationship with the Indians that would allow them to bring the gospel message to these Indians. January the 6th, the 8th, in 1956, at 3.30 p.m., these five young men were murdered on the beach of Kureka River. Many people wondered how young men with so much promise could waste their lives that way. When the journals of one of the young men, Jim Elliott, was later published by his wife, he had these words written down in his journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think the Apostle Paul would agree. Once you decide that your life won't last forever, you're free to invest it in a cause that is greater than yourself. The third thing that I would recognize in this passage of Scripture is our coffee cup verse for the day. For I believe that this was Paul's mission statement. This was what gave him an understanding that God not only called him to serve, but empowered him to serve. For Paul said, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You see, Paul was in a quandary. He was aware that death was a strong possibility for him. He weighed the glory of living and continuing to serve Christ against the greater glory of dying. And he didn't know what to choose. As far as he was concerned, both were wonderful. If he, were, if he was released from prison... He would continue to serve Christ. If he was condemned to die, he would continue his, his life with Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor, theologian, an anti-Nazi dissident, and a key founder, the member of the Confessing Church. His writing on the Christianity's role in the world had become widely influential. And his book, The Cost of Discipleship, has become a classic. Apart from his theological writings, Bonhoeffer was known for his staunch resistance of the Nazi dictatorship, including vocal opposition to Hitler's genocidal persecution of the Jews. He was arrested in April 1943 by the Gestapo and imprisoned at Tegau Prison for one and a half years. Later, he was transferred to a Nazi concentration camp after being associated with a plot to assassin Adolf Hitler. 
He was quickly tried and then executed by hanging on April the 9th, 1945, as the Nazi regime was collapsing. In Bonhoeffer's classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, on page 89, Bonhoeffer says these words, When Jesus Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. On the road to Damascus, when Paul encountered the living Christ, Paul was called to come and die. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Would you come? Let us pray. Father God, how blessed we are this day to hear Paul's words and understand that when you gave your life a ransom for our sins, our faith response to you would be to come and die. We pray our fathers reflect upon Paul's words that there'll be more than just words on a coffee cup, but they'll be our motto to live by. Thank you for your love and your grace in our life each and every day. These things we pray in your son's name. Amen. We're going to sing our hymn of invitation. If you do not know Christ as your Savior and Lord, we invite you, as the Apostle Paul did, to invite Christ to come into his life. We invite, invite you to invite Christ to come into your life as well. We also would like to invite you to come and be a part of this wonderful fellowship of believers here at First Baptist Church, believing that God has called us to a mission, the mission of reaching students and reaching believers and reaching non-believers in this community. We invite you to come. If God has placed upon you a decision that you should make, we invite you to come. Let's stand, let's sing, you come. <laughs>